with the third pick in the 2018 NFL Draft, the New York Jets select Sam Darnold, quarterback, USC. Back to throw is Darnold, looks left, has time, looks over the middle, fires one down the left sideline, towards the end zone, Robbie Anderson, he's got it, that's a Jet touchdown. Darnold takes the snap, looks right, throws right, up the middle, he's got the ball, pal, he's right at the 15, at the 10, he's into the end zone, that's a Jet touchdown. Sam Darnold hit him in stride. Winning a Super Bowl is everyone's goal, everyone on the team wants to win a Super Bowl. Anything short of that is a failure, and whatever my role is, I'm going to start in that role to work us towards that Super Bowl. One, two, three. In the home of the This is the Gang Nation Podcast with Michael Gang. Hello, and welcome back to the Gang Nation Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nania, and we have a very special guest on the show with us today. We got Mike DeVito coming on today, and he was a ton of fun to talk to. A lot of great memories from the Rex Ryan days, Eric Mangini days. We talked about the AFC Championship runs, playing with Brett Favre, uh, competing against the awesome O-line that the Jets had back with Mangold, Brick, Fanica, Woody, Brandon Moore, that awesome unit. So a ton of really great memories we talked about. He was a ton of fun to talk to, so take a listen to this tremendous interview we had with Mike DeVito. Rivers in trouble, and he's wrapped up at the 41. That's Mike DeVito with the sack. We have a very special guest joining us on today's show. He played 88 games in a Jets uniform, including all six playoff games from 2009 to 2010. Over his six years in green and white, he racked up 222 tackles, seven forced fumbles, six and a half sacks, and one safety on Ben Roethlisberger in the 2010 AFC Championship game. We got Mike DeVito here with us today. Mike, thanks a lot for coming on. How are you doing today? Man, Mike, doing well. Thank you for having me. Hey, those are some cool stats. I didn't even realize I had those. those. <laughs> I appreciate the research, man. I'm gonna, I have to take, take note of that. That's great. Thank you. How's everything going? Doing great. And yeah, those numbers, they add up. You were here a while. So Anyway, let's talk about your career in New York, and we'll start from the very beginning. You went undrafted out of Maine in 2007, and eventually you caught on with the Jets, who at the time were coached by Eric Mangini in the second of his eventual three years at the helm, and Mike Tannenbaum at GM. So how stressful was the process of going undrafted and coming out of a smaller school? Was not being selected a possibility you were ready for? And ultimately, how did the Jets come to be the team that you ended up with? Yeah, you know, the, the process was, uh, was certainly interesting, right? Because you get done your senior year, and now it's time to decide, okay, you know, am I going to go out to my agent to train? So my agent was out of Indianapolis. Um, so was I going to leave Maine and go out there and train, or was I going to stay in school and, you know, train up in Maine and trying to try to do both? And I decided, you know what, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket, kind of sell out and try to try to make a run for this. And so I went out to Indianapolis, you know, first time really being, being on my own in the real world and, and uh, went out there for three months, trained for the pro day. And, you know, I did well enough during the pro day that I thought I might've had a chance to get drafted. I remember looking at, uh, you know, the websites and all the, the draft scout and all that, trying to figure out, you know, if I could possibly get drafted and some, some things had me getting drafted in the seventh round. And so, I was excited and I, I was hopeful that I might get drafted. We had a draft party at the house. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, as you mentioned, that didn't, that didn't play out that way, but, uh, but yeah, no, my agent, 
they had a whole algorithm of, uh, you know, taking into account different things on different teams and, and where would be the best place for me to go. And New York was number one on that list with, you know, with the Jets. And so, um, and it just happened to play out that the Jets had called me and asked me uh, right after the draft to, to come out there and, and sign the free agent contract. And what a dream come true. I mean, it was bitter, you know, not getting drafted, but it was certainly sweet being able to be drafted to the team that I, or, or you sign a free agent deal to the team that I grew up rooting for, uh, being a Jets fan my whole life, being from New York originally. And so uh, it was, it was really an incredible experience getting to get that phone call from Eric Mangini and, and go out to, to New York to sign a free agent deal and start out as a rookie. And so it certainly was a stressful situation, but uh, it was really a blessing. And you brought up coming from a small school, you know, up at the University of Maine, and I, that really helped me because uh, I had that mentality, that small school, undrafted mentality that really took me through my whole career, which was that blue-collar, hard work, just nose-down grinding, not asking questions. Um, and so that really helped, especially with Eric Mangini as a head coach because that's something that he put a lot of stock in. He wanted guys that were going to grind and were going to work hard uh, that were going to fall in line and, and buy into the program. And he kept some of those guys, you know, over some other guys that were more talented. Uh, I know there were a lot of guys on that D-line that were better players than I was, but I think it was my work ethic that I really learned from the University of Maine that set me apart. And so uh, that, that that got me on the team. I probably wasn't good enough, but that work ethic and that, that blue-collar mentality that I took from the University of Maine uh, allowed me and gave, gave me a spot on that roster. Yeah, and as as soon as you mentioned that that small school mentality, it, it came right to my mind. And then you hit on it that it would be a great fit with Eric Mangini. That's the exact kind of guy that he is. So moving on to your second season with the Jets in two thousand eight, you played all sixteen games that season uh, after only playing a few games as a rookie, and you picked up twenty four tackles and your first career half sack. So how were you able to build off of your rookie year in which you made the team as an undrafted free agent? and you fought your way onto the roster late in the year and elevate from those successes to earn the trust of not just Mangini, but the entire coaching staff and become an every week contributor in your second season. Yeah. You know, there were really two, two key components to that. The, the first would be Eric Mangini's system. We talked about the work ethic. Um, and, and the second part of, of that, that Mangini's system was the importance of film study. And so, I had a lot of time and I really was forced to watch a lot of film as a rookie and learn the game and learn the nuances of the game and the in and outs. And so, and this was poor before 2011 with the new rules. And so, a, 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 you know, a normal day during, you know, the spring during OTAs was 12 hours. I mean, we'd get in at seven and the rookies would be there till seven o'clock at night studying film and, and doing stuff like that. Now, nowadays it's two and a half, three hours. So it's unheard of now, but, um, but that really, really helped me, not just, you know, going on from my first year to my second year, but my entire career is that precedence that Eric Mangini and his coaching staff, Dan Quinn, the defensive line coach at the time, um, really, really put an emphasis on that. And that taught me the game. Uh, and that's something that I didn't get at the small school, right? So being at a small school, you really can just rely on your abilities. You know, I didn't have to study film or anything like that. I was just going to beat the guy in front of me. But in the NFL, totally different beast. And so... Um, learning how to study the game, learning the nuances of the game, uh, and that being kind of pivotal in Eric Mangini's system really helped uh, going on for my first year, second year. I had a lot of confidence going into those games. 
And then secondly, were the guys in that locker room. Um, you know, I just starting off my first year in training camp, these guys didn't end, end up making the team, but Kimo Von Olhoffen and Bobby Hamilton, those older vets that took me under their wing and taught me the game. And then moving forward from there was Eric Hicks and uh, uh, Kenyon Coleman and Sean Ellis and Dwayne Robertson and all these guys. Um, uh, and then my second year, I believe, yeah, Chris Jenkins comes in. He teaches me things, takes me under his wing. And so though, having all those guys that could have easily said, you know, here's this rookie trying to take our job. We're not going to, you know, even bother with him. Uh, they did the exact opposite. They invested in me, took me under their wing, taught me the game. And so when you couple that, when you couple, you know, great veteran leadership, veteran presence, teaching you the game, coupled with Eric Mangini's system and, and the, the precedence and, you know, the focus on learning film and learning the playbooks and, and studying offenses, um, that, that propelled me into my whole career. Uh, and, and I just built off that year after year having those, those influences. And then as I got older, I tried to, to teach that to, to the younger players. And so before we move on to the Rex years, obviously the headliner of that 2008 team in your second year was Brett Favre. So from your perspective, you were with the team throughout the process of acquiring him and then, of course, played with him throughout the season. So what was your reaction when you found out Favre was going to be a Jet? And what was it like competing against him in practice and watching him prepare and play each week? So having, I remember the first time we saw Brett Favre, we were in the locker room. Uh, it was a preseason game. We were going to we play against the Browns. And Brett Favre came in. The, we had just signed him. And it was my probably the only time in my NFL career that I saw the whole locker room was in awe that Brett Favre was there. I mean, he was really that kind of figure. Everybody was like, wow, that's Brett Favre. You know, and I don't know if there was another player throughout the rest of my career that that, that kind of reaction from the locker room. Uh, that, you know, that something like that happened. I mean, it was just incredible. He was like this transcendent figure uh, coming into the room. And so I, I know we were really excited. Again, we were in awe, kind of starstruck that it was Brett Favre. And really excited to have him on the team, obviously, you know, Hall of Famer uh, uh, and one of the best quarterbacks ever um, uh, was, was really incredible. And so, uh, yeah, no, that was, uh, that was really exciting. And I knew uh, it was going to be a different year when, the first, uh, you know, the first practice bar comes out to uh, Hofstra, so it comes out on the field, and there was probably, I don't know, 25,000, 30,000 people at training camp practice <laughs> that day. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, absolutely incredible. So, so yeah, having him on the team was, was really, uh, really something else. And, again, one of those things that I look back at my career and think, wow, that was, uh, that was amazing. I, I mean, to this day, you know, prior to the butt fumble, everybody used to ask what was it like playing with Brett Favre. And, and I still get that question, you know, second most now, you know, and number one is where you're on the team with the butt fumble. Uh, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty sad. Just anyway, so <laughs> just moving on to the, like, some better memories, some better memories in the butt fumble, the glory days, 2009 yeah. and 2010. Rex Ryan comes in at head coach and brings a completely new vibe to the entire franchise. And we'll start with 2009. So what was the transition like from the very beginning of Rex's arrival. Of course, from the outside, fans could feel the dramatic shift in mood that he brought to the organization, and ultimately it did lead to a lot of success early on, but the personality he brought to the table was definitely extremely unique and matched by very few across the entire sport. So what was your reaction and a collective reaction of the locker room 
when you found out Rex was going to be the new head coach? And was there a period of adaption and getting used to his personality, or did he connect with the team right off the bat? Well, you know Rex is going to connect with the team. I mean, just he's, he's one of the greatest personalities I've ever been around. I mean, I, I love the man so much. Um, and you, you, you learn to love him right away. I think that's why, you know, the majority of the players on the, in the NFL would do, you know, would die to be able to be on the team with, with Rex Ryan as a coach. Uh, just, a, just an incredible man. Um, but I, I remember the transition was difficult in the sense that you're going from Eric Mangini's system, which is like, you know, you need to know the number of grains of sand on the entrance mat to the facility to, to Rex, which was very much, listen, you show up and play well on Sunday. And like, just do that. Like, that's what I'm worried about. Uh, and so I remember there were a lot of times I'd be still thinking like we were in Eric Mangini's system and I'd constantly be going in to talk to the coaches to be like, Hey, where am I at? Am I, am I doing okay? What do I need to do better? And I remember one day Mike Petton, uh, just saying, bro, you got to go home. Like, just get out of here. Leave us alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just put so fed up. So it was, it was a transition in that sense because you just completely weren't used to, having coaches that, you know, uh, it was more of a friendship. You know, there was certainly a respect, uh, but there was also a friendship there. That, uh, and so you, it made it a lot of fun. And you, you talk about those two years, 2009, 2010, you loved coming to work. I mean, Rex just, you just laughed. Every day was fun, good or bad. You know, there were, there were days that we had bad days, obviously, and tough losses. But, like, you knew going in with Rex, like, he was going to build the team up. Uh, and you, we were going to bounce back from it. And you had some incredible players in those locker rooms. I remember thinking back to some of the guys, Thomas Jones, uh, Jason Taylor came the next year, but um, just some incredible guys in those locker rooms, obviously Darrell Revis. Um, and so it was, it was really a fun season. 2009 was a lot of fun because I think the expectations were low. We were talking, everybody's talking rebuilding year uh, and things, things of that sort. And obviously we come out, I think we come out 3-0, and and then lose to New Orleans, and then the middle of the season's kind of bumpy. And then towards the end of the year, you know, we need the last two games to win the last two games to get into the playoffs, and we, we ended up beating, um, was it the Colts and the Bengals? Uh, and the Bengals was the last game at uh, the old stadium, uh, the old, the old uh, stadium there in the Meadowlands. Um, that was the last game played there. And then we go in the first round of the playoffs to Cincinnati, and beat him a second time, you know. And then uh, the second game, I believe, was San Diego. Yeah, so we went out to San Diego and beat them. And now we're coming, going to Indy to play Indy in the AFC Championship game. I mean, it's just, it was just incredible. It was so much fun. Uh, I hadn't gotten to experience the playoffs like that before or after. I mean, there was nothing like that. Uh, and just the atmosphere and the the crowd and uh, you know the great Jets fan base. I mean, it just was. Those two years, 2009, 2010, I mean, it's hard to, uh, you know, there's nothing like that for me, you know, outside of maybe getting married and the birth of my kids. Uh, that's the pinnacle right there. Getting, uh, you know, I remember getting on the plane and there, you know, being a pep rally, waiting, you know, waiting to walk us out to the plane or to the buses. Um, those years were just incredible. And I know talking to Jets Nation, they still think back and, and we reminisce about those times. And obviously we wish we could have sealed the deal, but those were two really fun years. And, there couldn't have been a better coach at the helm for that because Rex Ryan, when you're winning like that, you're going to have fun. And he, he made, he made it so much fun going into work and, and getting ready to play those games. So yeah, 2009 was, it was a great year. 
Yeah, and next I was going to ask you about the playoffs in 2009. So in that divisional game against San Diego, you guys held the Chargers to 14 points in that game after they were one of the most prolific scoring offenses in the league that season. They won 11 straight games going into that one. So what do you remember about the game plan for that game in San Diego? How do you think you guys as a unit executed it so well? And also you had a huge sack in that game too in the fourth quarter on Phillip Rivers to eventually force a punt. Then Sean Green scored with his big touchdown run to give you guys a cushion to eventually win the game. So what do you remember game planning for that game? And what do you remember about uh, your huge sack of Rivers in the fourth quarter? Yeah, you know, we, we were built for those kind of games. We're, there were a couple of things that Rex brought in to New York as a couple of different philosophies. The one thing was we were going to be an all-weather team. So whether hot, cold, uh, rain, snow, we were going to thrive in those environments. And one of the things that you do well in those environments is you run the football and you stop the run. And, boy, that's what we did. When you look at our offensive lines, uh, our offensive line, our defensive line those couple of years, we shut down the run and we would run the football. I mean, I remember going against those guys, Damian Woody, Tabrickshaw Ferguson, Alan Fanica, Nick Mangold, um, and Brandon Moore. That offensive line, I mean, it, to this day, there was nothing like it. Those guys were so violent, would drive you, you know, 10 yards up the field. I was more nervous in training camp than I ever was during a game on Sunday playing against those guys. Uh, and then you have Thomas Jones running the football. Uh, and so that was just, uh, you know, incredible. Uh, and that's what we did well. And that's what you need to do, especially back then, at least. You really needed to be able to run the football and stop the run uh, and in the playoffs even more so. And so that was the plan. And then on defense, we always said we're going to build a bully. Like, we're going to build a defense that you're going to, you know, other teams are going to watch us on the film and they're going to circle that day on the calendar and say, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to play those guys. Uh, in 2009, 2010, we got that done. We had a nasty defense. And I just remember going out there to San Diego uh, uh, and having guys like Bart Scott, you know, and, and guys, you know, guys like that and uh, thinking, we, we, we got this. Like, this is, this is, you know, this is cakewalk. The way we were, we were so fired up and so ready for that game. I knew we were going to win that. And there have been a few times that that has happened where I've said, okay, yeah, we got this one. And that was one of them. That was one of the times I said, yep, we're, we're going to win this game. Uh, just the vibe before the locker room, I still remember it so vividly. Um, so, yeah, so that was uh, – and then sacking Rivers, I mean, uh, it was funny. Before the game, Mike Pettin had told me, listen, you can't pass rush anyway. Just worry about the screens and the draws. Just play screens and draws. Like, I don't need you trying to, trying to rest the passer. <laughs> just play screens and draws. And then I end up rushing the passer and getting, uh, you know, getting a sack and a big point. I think he might have given me a minus on the play because I had not done what he said, you know. So uh, we were joking about it. But, yeah, no, that was, uh, that was probably the biggest sack of my career, you know, was, was second Philip Rivers at that point in the game where it was, you know, a pivotal point. So let's move on to 2010. And before we talk about those playoffs and the team's improvement that year, you had a career year in that season. Production-wise, you picked up 59 tackles, which was double your previous career high, four tackles for loss, uh, two forced fumbles. So you were making more plays than you ever were. And in this season, and then throughout your next two in New York, you were clearly improving each and every year. Just watching you, too, it was really evident how much better you were getting with the entire defense. So I'll ask a couple of questions about your development yeah. as a player. Firstly. Considering your remarkable jump in production under Rex in particular, what effect did he have on your positive development on the field in terms of how he used you schematically and any sort of knowledge he's able to rub off on you? So 
with Rex, what did, how did Rex help you develop as a player once he came to New York? Uh, I mean, you got one of the best defensive coaches ever and one of the be- best defensive line coaches ever. I mean, people forget that, but he was a defensive line coach. Um, and, and I think it was also a product of the system as well. Re- Rex's system was this, you know, this hybrid 4-3, 3-4, lots of movement, uh, lots of, you know, one-on-one uh, matchups. You know, you're hitting gaps. In, in Eric Mangini's system, it's a static 3-4, right? So I'm, I'm head up on the tackle. And I'm two-gapping that tackle. And so it's a lot harder in those defenses for the defensive line to make plays, uh, uh, especially rushing the passer. Forget it. But then uh, it's difficult to make, to make plays. It's really designed for linebackers and outside linebackers to, to make plays. And you're, you're just eating up guys up front trying to hold the line of scrimmage. So I think it was a matter of having Rex teaching me the game, uh, again, and, and, and you know, learning – the basics and learning a, a, a great deal from Dan Quinn and then going right to, um, to Rex Ryan. I mean, that was a massive, you know, that was, that was such an asset for me uh, as a player. Um, but yeah, but, and then again, the product of the system, you know, having, you know, systems where I could be in a three technique and just get off the ball a hundred miles an hour, you know, and not have to worry about two gap and, and, and doing things like that. So, um, so yeah, so that really helped with my production and, uh, and then you grow, you know, you start making plays, you start getting more confidence, you start making more plays. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so, and that was my thing. I mean, every year I was trying to improve, trying to get better. And so, uh, you know, with a couple hiccups there in 2011 with some injuries, um, that was kind of my progression in New York. If you looked from, you know, 2007 to 2012, each year was better and better. And so, uh, and that was really, that's really what I set up to do. And I couldn't have done that without Rex uh, in his system. Yeah, so in the 2010 season, you guys won 11 games, took another wild card. So I want to ask you about the mood around that team from the inside, considering, once again, the dramatic highs and lows you face in the postseason. You went into Indianapolis in the wild card round, got revenge on the Colts for last year's championship game loss, beat Peyton Manning in his last game as a Colt, then, of course, went into New England and upset the Pats after getting blown out by them a few weeks before. And all these years later, that win in Foxborough is the last time the Pats have lost prior to the AFC Championship game. So two amazing wins there uh, after the 11-win season. So following that game, of course, you go into Pittsburgh and almost complete the comeback to make it to the Super Bowl. You got credit for the safety on Big Ben in the fourth quarter, but ultimately the team falls short again. So comparing the 2010 postseason to 2009, how did the confidence of the team following the New England victory compared to the Chargers win? And then following that, how did the second consecutive loss, one game short of the Super Bowl, was the team significantly more shaken after the Pittsburgh loss compared to the Colts loss the year before? Because I know you said it was 2009 was an underdog sort of, sort of year. It wasn't expected for you guys to be as good as you were. So how, what was the difference between the morale, both after the wins and the losses in 2010 compared to 2009? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it was. Going going into 2009, you know, we were surprised to be there a little bit. Um, and so when we got done, obviously you're one game short of the Super Bowl, so you're you're still miserable. But, uh, you know, we were never supposed to be there. And here we are finishing the season 9-7, and, and we're one game away, you know, from the Super Bowl. 2010, you know, now you slap Jason Taylor in the mix. Uh, you got, you know, one of the best secondaries, you know, ever. Your whole offensive line is stacked. Your whole offense is stacked. Um, we knew we were going to be good in 2010. Uh, we knew it. 
And so winning, you know, beating New England, that, that was the greatest win of my football career. Uh, and then saying, okay, we're going down to Pittsburgh. We had, we had beaten Pittsburgh in the regular season. Uh, and we thought, yeah, we're, we're one game away from the Super Bowl, and we're going to get it this year. Um, we're going to get it. And so um, that was really hard to swallow. And it's something that, uh, that I really struggle with because one of the last plays in the game, uh, it was the last play. They needed a first down. They, they needed. A, it was. A, I believe it was. I don't know. It was third or fourth down. But they needed a, a conversion, and then the game was over. If we would have stopped them, we would have gotten the ball back. And my responsibility as an outside end was to keep Big Ben contained inside. And I, I bit inside for a second, and it was just enough time for Ben to roll out, and he had an open pass to the wide receiver. And so not only did we not make the Super Bowl, but a lot of it, uh, I could have uh, possibly kept him, at least kept him in the pocket and made the, whole, the throw a lot more difficult. But because of that mistake, um, you know, they were able to get the first down and, and we couldn't do anything else after that. The time was up. So that was an incredibly difficult play. Uh, and it was, it was a difficult way to end the season. Again, we thought we could... We thought we would be going to the, you know, to going to the Super Bowl. We really felt that way. And so um, when you look at it, I think one of the things that we had talked about was we can't, you know, next year we need to win more games during a regular season. We got to win that. We got to win the AFC East. Because if anything, we at least want to have a home game. It is very difficult to travel three games on the road in the postseason. You know, it's not impossible, but it is really difficult to do. And I remember both of those games, both of those AFC championship games, we were tired. You know, we were, we were tired and you could see it on film. And so, um, you know, obviously we didn't get that, but one of the things we had wanted and talked about after that was we need to, we need to win, we need to win the AFC so that we can, you know, move on and, and at least have a home game. So we'll briefly go over some of the highlights of the 2011, 2012 seasons. Uh, let's start with week one of 2011. Uh, you guys were hosting the Cowboys on Sunday night football to open the season. It was the 10th anniversary of nine 11. And I remember being in the building for that game. It was electric. It was actually the first jets game I'd been to. And it was a special environment in there. One of the most energetic crowds I've ever heard. And you wound up making one of the biggest plays in this game, forcing a fumble from Tony Romo with the Cowboys threatening to score in the fourth quarter. That was a huge play in the game. So what do you remember about the environment in that game, especially uh, as the first game of the season coming off of the Pittsburgh loss a few months ago? What do you remember about the environment in that game and then your huge play forcing that fumble on Romo? Yeah, I mean, talk about you know going from the worst play in my career to probably one of the most memorable, making that play. You got the, you know, the opening game at home. 10-year anniversary of September 11th. Obviously, you want to win that game for the home crowd. Uh, and so to make that play uh, on the goal line there to, to win the game was just, I mean, that was incredible. And again, one of those things, whenever I'm having a bad day, I can just reflect back on and feel a little bit better about myself. Um, but yeah, no, that was uh, that was an incredible atmosphere. And obviously, you have such a uh, such a emotional event like 9-11 to be, you know, commemorating that or, or remembering that um, uh, and having a game basically dedicated to that, going against the Cowboys at home. I mean, it was just there's no bigger atmosphere than that. And so I remember the crowd being nuts. I remember, you know, all the fireworks and everything. So that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And, and that was the start of a season where I thought, okay, here we go again. 
we'll be right back to where we were before, you know? Um, and so obviously that season didn't play out that way, but, uh, but yeah, no, that was, uh, that was a, a great win against a good team and, uh, uh, getting us anytime you get a sack on Tony Romo, it's, uh, it's something that you, you, you know, you check off your list of things to do in your football career. Uh, but to get a sack on them, uh, and causing the fumble and win the game, that, uh, that was a major, you know, major, uh, uh, point in my career. So the Jets actually haven't scored a fumble recovery touchdown since November 11th, back in 2012 in Seattle when you stripped Russell Wilson and Muhammad Wilkerson picked it up for the score. Uh, the only touchdown you guys scored in that game. So we talked about a few of the huge plays you made, uh, the Romo fumble, the Russell Wilson play. So I'll ask you this, just referring to your career in general, you made a ton of splash plays, like we said. So from the standpoint of a defensive lineman, how do you master the art of making big plays, whether it's knocking the football out, recovering a loose ball, deflecting a pass, is becoming the type of player who makes a lot of those splash plays based a lot on luck, or are there intricacies in your game that you focused on to become more adept at making plays like that? You know, I think one of the biggest things when it comes to making plays, especially like a guy like me where, you know, I'm not the most athletic. In fact, I'm not really athletic at all. You know, I'm not the fastest. And so my game wasn't going to be, let me fire off the ball a million miles an hour, throw some fast move, you know, J.J. Watt a guy and get a guy in the backfield. That wasn't just, I just didn't have the ability to do that. So what, how I made my game, what my base, my game off of was um, playing within the defense, playing the defense that was called and, and playing my technique to the best of my ability. Now, that's not sexy and that's not going to get you a ton of plays. But those plays are going to show up when you're in when you're in your spot and you're doing things the right way. Those plays are going to come to you. Uh, and so obviously I didn't make a ton of amazing plays, but a lot of those plays just came from consistency playing within the defense, and that put me at the right place at the right time. And so, uh, so yeah, there. You know, I, I look back at my career and I always think, man, I wonder if I could have done better. I wonder if I could have done more. If I should have taken some more chances. Uh, but that's really what I hung my hat on was, you know, I'm going to be a you know, a, a guy that this defense can depend on to be at the right place at the right time. And then every once in a while doing that, you know, it allows you to, to make some big plays. So let's finish up talking a little bit about the present day NFL. The second team that you played for following your stint with the Jets was the Kansas City Chiefs. And they spent the entire year atop the AFC, led by Patrick Mahomes, who's having an incredible season. So over each of your three seasons in Kansas City, you played under Andy Reid and with Alex Smith. So from your experience with those two guys, how great do you think it's been for Mahomes to get the opportunity to grow both under and alongside those two, having sat behind Smith throughout his rookie season last year and now getting to play in Andy Reid's offense this year? Yeah, you know, I think there are a couple of things. First thing I'll say is I've had the opportunity when um, Kansas City the past two years has come in to play New England to go down and see the guys. And I've had an opportunity to meet Pat Mahomes, and he's one of the most humble, you know, nicest guys you could ever be around so he doesn't have that um uh you know that cockiness that he could easily adapt you know easily be because he's one of the best um and he doesn't have that you can tell he's a hard-working kid he's a humble kid uh and, and that that goes a long way when you have the talent that that he has uh i think a, a person that reminds me of that is Darrell Revis. you know Revis was one of those guys that had all the talent and ability but was also was a hard worker didn't stay a lot worked hard uh, and that's why he is a Hall of Famer. And I think you have the same kind of chemical makeup with uh, Pat Mahomes. And so you're right. And then you touched on the fact that he gets to train under Andy Reid and gets to spend a year under Alex Smith. So you have one of the greatest coaches ever, 
uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the league to learn from. And if they didn't rush him out there, they didn't do anything drastic. They let him build into his role. Uh, and that gave him confidence, let him learn the system. And then they surrounded him with, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the entire Pro Bowl roster, uh, you know, the AFC Pro Bowl roster. So, uh, on offense there. So, so yeah, I mean, it's just been fantastic to watch. You can see that they're, they're the most explosive team in the NFL. Even when they're not playing well, they're still putting 40 points on the board at least. So, um, so yeah, it's been fun to watch, and I'm excited for those guys. Uh, they're doing a great job. I mean, they make me think, geez, could I have made it three more years? You know, could I have still been playing at KC? Uh, I don't think I could have. But uh, but I wish I could be be there with those guys right now because that's a, that's a lot of fun to watch what they're doing. Yeah, so like you touched on it, these Chiefs are at the forefront of this increasingly offense-centric modern NFL. More points are being scored than ever. Good offensive teams are doing better overall than good defensive ones. So I ask you as someone who's made a career, like you said, on the interior D-line, stuffing runs, winning in the trenches, what are your overall thoughts on this massive scoring uptick that we're seeing this year? And also, how do you think it's affecting the position that you played both in terms of its value and the way it needs to be played in these changing conditions. Yeah, I mean the the value of a run stopping two down defensive lineman is minimum wage at best now. Uh, I I I don't like the way the game is being played. I know a lot of people do, and I know as a fan you probably do. Um, I uh, I don't like it played this way. I like the the gritty, violent, run the football. Um, you know, kind of mentality that we had when we were in New York. Uh, and then, obviously, you know, obviously you like the big plays and you like the big passes, but somebody likened it to kind of the NBA, right, where there's just no defense. Everybody, you know, scores 150 points a game. Uh, that's kind of what it's, what it's turned into. And that gets big ratings. I mean, a lot of people love watching those games. They're exciting games, right? A lot of fun games to watch. I guess me personally, I'd like a 3-0 to zero game where the, you know, the defenses are just crushing people. Uh, but the game's changed, and and uh, uh, that's that's what it's that's what it's going to be. It's kind of those weird one of those weird situations where the NFL is really driven by what's going on at the college level because those are the kind of players that are coming up through. And this West Coast spread them out. Nobody's under nobody's under center. Everybody's getting shotgun passes, five wides every play. Uh, that's just become become the NFL, and so you have to adapt. And Kansas City has done a fantastic job adapting i mean they have built a roster uh that is perfect for that you you have guys um that can make plays all over the offensive you know off an offensive game and then you have a defense that can rush the passer with chris jones and justin houston uh, uh alan bailey and those guys there d ford um and so that's how you that's how you build a roster and they've done it they've done a great job of it yeah, so you mentioned that you're more of a 3 nothing score kind of guy, and if there's any team in this current NFL that might be able to have a game like that, it might be these current 2018 Jets who have struggled on offense but had some really good moments on defense. But let's talk a little bit about this iteration of the Jets. So obviously it's been a rough season so far, but there is hope with Sam Darnold. So what are your thoughts on what you've seen from Darnold so far, and do you think the Jets – and like we talked about it with Mahomes, he got the chance to sit in his first year behind Alex Smith. So do you think the Jets made the right move starting Sam from the beginning as the youngest week one starting quarterback in NFL history? Yeah, I think so. I think that's, I think they didn't have, really have a choice. Uh, I mean, well, you know, you, you do. I mean, a kick count is good, a good quarterback as well. And, but I think, he, you know, Donald's your guy, and I think you've you got to go with it. I, I think that 
situation was a little bit different than it was in Kansas City with Alex. Smith. Yeah, definitely. Um, but but you know what? I I I love watching their defense. I think you bring it, bring up a great point. Those guys are young. They're fiery. I see a lot of uh, them. What was like when, when we were playing in two thousand nine? Um, and again, this is one of those things. You, you know, you're plugging in the rookie quarterback and that that position. I mean, the whole thing revolves around that position. Um, and so he's had his ups and downs, and so has the team. And obviously, the injuries don't don't help. But uh, I think I think all the pieces are set. You know, you need a couple more things, a couple little things here and there. But I think the bulk of the roster is set to make a good run uh, here for the Jets going into the future. And I think you continue to build and get those guys out there to finish up these last you know four or five weeks. Um, and then you add where you need to in the off season, obviously. But but I think you have a good 80, 85% core of guys that are going to be Jets players and might, might be Jets players for a long time because of their ability. Um, and so, so yeah, I, th- I think we're in a good spot. Obviously, the year didn't turn out as, as like we planned. And then when you start out with that, was it the Detroit game where, yeah, um, yeah where it was just like Darnold just went off. Um, uh, you know, your, your hopes get real high real quick. But, New York's a t- New York's top. It's a tough place to be a quarterback. Um, it's a tough place to play. I'm sure there's some some uh, getting used to that as well. Uh, it's, you know, New Yorkers, we're not gonna uh, take it easy on you. We're not gonna say, okay, you you know, you had a bad game. Let's move on to next week. You're, you're gonna hear about it in New York. And so, I think there's some getting used to it on the field. There's some getting used to it off the field. But once Sam gets things rolling and gets comfortable, uh, and you know, those young guys are a year older next year, I think you're. You're looking at a, a nice, a nice roster for the Jets, and, and I'm excited. I'm, I'm ready for the Jets to be be back on top. Yeah. So, like you mentioned, the Jets do only have a few more pieces to go, so they're going to have a lot of room to make those moves in free agency in this upcoming offseason with a lot of holes to fill. But undoubtedly, the biggest debate among Jets fans has been and will continue to be whether or not the team should chase Le'Veon Bell. So you were with the team back in 2010. Much different situation, but the Jets signed a big name running back in LT. And of course, that was a much different situation. Tomlinson was later in his career than Bell currently is. But what do you think of the Jets and the potential of chasing a guy like Bell? And in addition to him, where else do you think the team should look to improve over the offseason? It's so hard. This is a hard question. This goes back to what we were talking about before with the way the game is changing. I mean, I, I don't know if I played a running back as difficult to stop as uh, Le'Veon Bell. I mean, you, you and obviously you know, and you're, everybody listening knows his style of running and his ability to basically stop on a dime, cut, and then hit it 100 miles an hour down a different gap. Uh, it's unparalleled. I mean, there's nothing like it. It's very difficult to play against. Uh, but again, is that going to give you the 40 points you need to compete with Kansas City and New England? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's, you know, you, so you, you obviously you like the idea of it and the run game opens up a lot of different things, but now you're talking about this massive contract. Um, you know, you don't, I don't know. It's hard to tell. I know, I believe if I'm, if I'm correct, the jets have, uh, some, some cap space to work with next year. Um, so maybe that, maybe that makes the situation different, but yeah, it's tough. Again, the, the, the way the league is going you know, you want to go out there and sign guys like Tyreek Hill. You know, you want to sign that guy, the Josh Gordon, the guy that's going to, you know, you know, hit the slant and take off and run for 30 yards or going to, you know, hit it downfield, you know, so you can get him on a 40-yard path. I mean, that's, those are the kind of guys you need to beat the top teams right now. And so Le'Veon Bell, you know, he'll be the best running back free agent 
uh, going, but is he worth the cap space in, in today's NFL? I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, definitely. That's going to be the huge question. The Jets have to answer this offseason. So before we let you go, a couple more quick questions here. Just looking back at some of the highlights of your career. So I'll start with this. And you talked a little bit about it earlier with the road playoff environments. But what is the toughest road environment that you've played in over your career? You know, so I played, obviously playing in Arrowhead was very loud, but being the home team made it made it easy. Um, Seattle was, I think, is the, is the most difficult place to play, the loudest place to play. You know, outside of Arrowhead, it, it was difficult to go in there. I would not want to have been the offense on that day we went up there in 2012. I mean, you couldn't hear yourself think that place is so loud. So I would say probably Seattle. And which one play if any, would stick out to you personally as the completion of your arrival into the NFL, a big player, maybe maybe even something that took place off the field or something positive that was said to you, that one moment in which you came straight out of it thinking that you officially belonged and were there to stay. Is there a player moment that sticks out to you as fitting that I made it kind of moment? Yeah, so in 2008, in the offseason, um, we were doing our lifting program. Sal Alosi was the strength coach and I still have the video, so I I squatted 700 pounds, and I had the, the all the big guys were there with me. It was like towards the end of the off season, and I remember Alan Fanek had Damian Woody was there, um, uh, Sean Ellis. I have the video. Uh, and squatting 700 pounds in front of those guys. Those this, this was the first year, so it's rookies. You come in, you don't work out with the vets. You know, you work out on your own. And the second year, I'm coming in, I'm with the vets. Uh, and having all those guys surround me, cheer me on as I as I squatted 700 pounds, uh, that was kind of my wow, you know, of here I'm with these guys, like I'm part of these guys. So see them kind of cheering me on to do that. Uh, that was really a moment that I, I look. I mean, I'll still put that video on on my computer and just uh, uh, smile, you know. Uh, when I'm by myself, though, I don't let my wife know because she'll give me a hard time. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, that was probably the moment I was like, yeah, okay, this is great. I'm part, of, I'm, I'm part of the team now. I'm, I'm one of the guys. Yeah, so you just talked about uh, Fanica and some of the other O-linemen uh, working out with you. And earlier on, you talked about practicing against them, how tough it was going against that really incredible O-line that the Jets had during that time. So who was the toughest offensive lineman you competed against in practice during your time as a Jet? And then who would be the toughest lineman that you faced as an opponent? Okay, so practice against? That's hard because all those guys killed me. Damian Woody was really strong. He was really tough. And, and I played a lot on the left side, so going up against him was tough. Uh, Alan Fanica, not only was he strong, but just his ability. I mean, just he had incredible abilities. All of a sudden, you'd be, you'd be reached or cut off, and you're like, how did he get there? Um, same thing, the Brickishaw Ferguson had these long arms. That the second you got off the football, you were stopped in your tracks. Um, and then you had Brandon Moore, whose nickname was Meat, and he would just again you fire off the ball and you just hang in there because he was gonna he was low to the ground and gonna drive you like a D lineman. And then Nick Mangold, very much the same as Alan Fanica, like uh, powerful but at the same time so technical that you'd be beat and you wouldn't even know it. Um, so those guys across the board, I mean, each had their own asset that made it so difficult. Played a lot against Woody and he beat me time and time again. Um, I think the two most, probably there are three guys that were really difficult. I thought to play against throughout my career. The first was Leonard Davis when he was the guard down in Dallas. Uh, Chris Dealman 
the left guard for the Chargers and Logan Mankins. I think those are my three guys. I'm like, you know, three guys that were really tough. And then I think Richie Incognito is one of the tougher guys as well. So those three or four guys are probably my, uh, you know, uh, keep, keep kept me up at night a couple couple nights, you know, during my career. Yeah, and just you describing that uh, 9 10 offensive line, and I'm kind of fantasizing here because we really miss that with the Jets, and it's going to be a huge part of developing around Sam is going to be building something as good as those guys were. It was so much fun to watch them. So finally, to wrap everything up, how about a Super Bowl prediction to close this out? Are you going to go with your former team, with the Chiefs? Who do you think is going to be going to Atlanta this year? Yeah, I'm going to say Chiefs uh, against, uh, New Orleans, I know that's kind of the low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, that's, whatever, that's, that's not this uh, uh, wild prediction. But I, I think the Chiefs keep going. When you look at the schedule, I think uh, they, they win out um, or at least stay ahead of New England. Now New England has to well, – everybody has to go through Arrowhead, which, is, which you do not want to do in the playoffs. And so I'm going to say Chiefs go to the Super Bowl and beat New Orleans. Kansas City brings home the title again. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for coming on, Mike. And good luck to the of Chiefs, course. too. They are fun to watch. But thanks a ton for coming on. Excellent, Mike. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Once again, a big thanks to Mike DeVito for coming on and talking to us. And thanks to you for joining in. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, give the show good ratings, all that good stuff if you enjoy it. Make sure you stay tuned with everything we got going on at gangrenation.com every day, all year, everything Jets. And I will be back again soon to talk some more Jets. Talk to you then. This has been the Gangrene Nation Podcast. Make sure to follow Michael on Twitter at Michael underscore Nanya and keep up with everything Jets at GangreneNation.com. My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Fullcast. Keep telling you, we're not Voltron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations, bears in video games. I mean, there's also some actual football discussion, like about coaches having huge contracts, or coaches making terrible decisions, or coaches saying really stupid things. Or the NCAA saying really stupid things. Yeah, there's lots of stupid things in this big, dumb, beautiful sport. Sometimes we talk about football games. Allegedly. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one. The Shutdown Fullcast. It's not Voltron.